Are you in the market for a new home? How about a 10-room, 18th-century farmhouse on 200 acres in one of the country's very first states? The house comes with a rich history of decades of ownership and maybe a ghost or two doomed to haunt its ancient halls. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who is always skeptical when they see based on a true story at the beginning of a movie. Like, I could write a biopic about myself and say that I'm an A-list movie star. I've been in a few movies, so it's based on a true story. And then after I'm dead, people will see the movie and think I was a huge movie star, when in reality, I haven't paid my union dues in over a year because I can't afford them. Oh, the irony. Today on the show, we'll dig into the true story behind the 2013 mega-hit, The Conjuring. If you're into horror movies, you've seen The Conjuring. Purportedly based on a true story, The Conjuring stars Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson as real-life married ghost-busting team Ed and Lorraine Warren, who are called in to investigate the creepy goings-on in a farmhouse in Rhode Island. Roger and Carolyn Perrin and their five daughters, which is four too many daughters for my taste, but you do you, moved in and almost right away began experiencing some weird shit. Long story short, the house is mega haunted. Honestly, there's a lot going on in this movie between a laundry ghost, old lady ghost, maid ghost, random lady ghost, a couple of child ghosts, several hangings, a haunted doll, animals who die around a certain part of the house, and a piano that plays itself. By the time the witch who worshipped Satan explanation part came up, I sort of zoned out and just let the movie kind of happen to me. The denouement, thank you very much, involves Lily Taylor, one of my all-time faves, getting possessed and thrown around a bunch in a chair. Ed and Lorraine are like, get ye gone, Satan, and Satan gets himself gone. The Perrin family was involved in the development of the screenplay, which is great because it means the screenwriters could check and corroborate facts with the actual people who went through it. In theory. In fact, the source material for the movie was the book House of Darkness, House of Light by none other than the Perrin family's eldest daughter, Andrea, self-published in 2011. The book is more than 500 pages long, which, girl, you better be a damn good writer if you think I'm going to read 500 pages. And it better be post-apocalyptic fiction. There's no audio version that I could listen to at double speed. The first and last parts are available to preview on Amazon, though, so I skimmed those, and now I am the foremost expert on the book. The opening of Chapter 1, which comes after more than 20 pages of preamble, in which the reader is promised a harrowing tale that is in no way made up or embellished, begins thusly. So it began... Long before Carolyn Perrin ever considered picking up that newspaper at the corner market, the wise, infinite universe began conspiring with elements on Earth to provide an extraordinary pathway for her family. 
Perhaps it was fate, or their destiny. Whatever it was, powerful forces beyond mortal imagination intervened on behalf of those who sought respite from an intense and chaotic existence. During the summer of 1970, cosmic confluence occurred in the firmament. Their journey commenced. Lo and behold. Honestly, it's like being on a blind date where the guy spends the first half hour telling you how amazing he is and what an extraordinary time you're going to have. And he has spinach in his teeth and he smells like Febreze. It seems Andrea went on a bit of a press tour online promoting her book in 2013 when the first Conjuring movie came out. I got a lot of the information on the story from those interviews. Lo and behold. In the book, Andrea recounts the terrifying ordeal she and her family endured in that house, sometimes referred to as the Arnold Estate, after the family that had built it in the 1700s. Also, she talks about herself and the family as though she wasn't a member of the family. It's like someone writing a memoir in third person. The giant old 10-room farmhouse on 200 acres of New England forest is the quintessential spooky haunted house, with more than two centuries worth of history in a part of the country that hosted the first wave of the violence and bloodshed that established it. Indeed, the house itself is older than the country in which it exists, having been built in 1736 on land most certainly wrestled away from its previous occupants. Perhaps it is because of this hallowed history that New England is so often associated with witches and ghouls. According to Andrea, the spirits in the house didn't even wait till the family had moved in to start tormenting them. Something, she says, compelled the family to move from their previous house. A series of terrible things had happened to the family in the old neighborhood of Cumberland, Rhode Island, where, quote, During the summer of 1970, the changing society around them began encroaching, imposing itself upon their idyllic existence. A sense of security was sadly forsaken. And the family was catapulted toward an 18th century farmhouse on 200 acres in Harrisville, Rhode Island, about a half hour away. Now, I'm no historian, but I can Google census data, and I am baffled about what changing society Andrea is referring to. But in Andrea's defense, I can understand her trying to come up with a reason for why the family moved into this particular house. What a trucker and his unemployed wife and five daughters would need with a giant farmhouse on 200 acres is hard to fathom. But I digress. Something wicked that way came and drove the Perrin family to the house in Harrisville. But right away on moving day, a few of the younger girls noticed a man inside the house watching them. Andrea thought he was just a family friend who was helping them move, but her sister Nancy said she saw him vaporize in front of her eyes. In the beginning, for a while, the ghosts in the house were helpful. One of them swept the kitchen... No one saw that ghost. The family would just come into the kitchen and find a neat pile of dirt in the middle of the room, and the broom moved from where it had been. A piece on AlteredDimensions.com said that that ghost was presumably female, because Lord knows, even in eternity, a woman will still use her free time 
to keep house. There was Manny, the ghost who Andrea described as a friendly ghost whom the children loved, but from what I understand, all he did was stand there watching the children while they played. When the children tried to make eye contact with him, he would vanish. That sounds more like a creep than a friend. And there was the ghost who would visit Cynthia in the middle of the night and give her kisses on her forehead. I sincerely hope this was not Manny. It's bad enough he was creeping around their rooms. No one wants Manny the ghost giving their children goodnight kisses. But soon, the girls' toys would go missing from their rooms and show up in other parts of the house. The girls, who Andrea said had always shared everything and, quote, loved each other madly, were now starting to turn on each other. Sisters will forgive each other for a lot, but move their Barbies and you're going to have a problem. The ghostly antics became increasingly violent, though. Cynthia claims her bed would levitate inches off the ground and take her for a ride around her room. And even though she would be screaming in terror, it seemed no one else in the house could hear her. She said it was like you'd be in a soundproof bubble. Sister, I get it. I feel like I've been screaming into a soundproof bubble for most of my life. Is this thing on? In the movie, there's one night when Carolyn, the mother, is investigating a strange sound coming from downstairs. But as she approaches the stairs, all of the pictures on the wall fly off and crash to the ground. None of the sleeping children seem to hear the fracas, though, which is neither explained nor even questioned in the film. This is indeed the only time no one else can hear what's happening in the house. Every other bang or squeak, by the way, the house seriously could have used a going over with a can of WD-40, or cry for help is heard. But no one seems to hear the giant crash and shatter of a dozen picture frames being violently flung to the ground. And see, I would be more likely to buy into your ghost story if there weren't little oversights like this, you know? It's like, sure, I can go along with the idea that scientists brought dinosaurs back to life and opened a theme park around them, but as soon as you have a woman running through the park in four-inch heels, I'm out. There's a base level of believability you need to have in order to convince me there's ghosts and goblins, or dinosaurs, or that Ryan Reynolds is attractive. So, the haunting started amping up with your run-of-the-mill doors opening and closing on their own, chairs mysteriously being pulled out from under people, and the girls feeling like they were being yanked by the legs while in bed. One ghost child roamed around the house crying for their mother. This may have been an 11-year-old girl Andrea said had been raped and murdered in the house decades before. And that's when eight-year-old Cindy started hearing a voice telling her there were seven dead soldiers buried in the walls. Why there would be seven dead soldiers buried in the walls and whether or not a search was conducted for these seven dead soldiers, I don't know. Regardless, the family realizes they have bigger fish to fry when one day, while playing hide-and-seek, little Cynthia climbed into the wood box. After waiting for a while, when no one found her, she went to open the box and found it wouldn't open. It wasn't locked. There's no logical reason she shouldn't have been able to open the box. But, she claimed, try as she did, the lid wouldn't budge. Naturally, she began to panic and bang on the lid, crying out for help. 
No one came. Cynthia said she gave up after about 20 minutes. By the time one of her sisters found her in the wood box, Cynthia was red-faced and exhausted. Andrea explained in an interview that Cynthia was suffocating because she says there were no air holes in the box. It was, quote, solid oak. And I don't mean to be nitpicky, but really? They had an airtight wood box made of solid oak in the 1970s? And sure, maybe she's being hyperbolic, but if you can't describe a wood box without bending the truth, how am I supposed to believe the rest of what you're claiming? The devil is in the details, and probably not in the parent house. Cynthia also claims to have had a run-in with a ghost who called out to her, saying, Come to me, little girl. In an interview, Cynthia said, quote, Now, I don't know if it was one of the women that had hanged themselves or if she was tilting her head when the way you do when you look at an adorable little child, end quote. You know, the way you look at an adorable little child as though you'd just hanged yourself. But no sooner did the family have to start worrying about tilted-headed apparitions when yet another spirit began to torment them. And this one made it clear she wasn't looking at you when the way you do when you look at an adorable little child. Of all the mysterious sounds and ghosts and apparitions in the movie version of The Conjuring, the weirdest thing is that Mr. and Mrs. Perrin, after however many years of marriage and five children, still seem even remotely attracted to each other. Not only that, but remarkably, Carolyn seems to have boundless energy. Not only for sex, but for folding laundry at three in the morning? See, this is why it's impossible to watch a movie with me. You're worried about the witch who hung herself in the barn or whatever, and I'm yelling, who folds laundry at 3 a.m.? Anyway. Roger apparently didn't have trouble with the ladies. According to Andrea, one of the spirits would caress him on the neck and back whenever he was in the cellar fixing machinery. What this machinery was, or why they had so much of it that was broken in their basement, she did not elaborate. I suppose this was in the days before the ubiquitous man cave, and if the man of the family needed privacy, he'd just be like, don't bother me, I'm fixing machinery in the basement. One source I read claimed that Roger and the spirit developed a kinship, but honestly, I don't know if Andrea claimed that in the book or if the source's author was extrapolating. Andrea described the spirit that Roger was apparently getting cozy with in the basement as, quote, a vile, hideous creature described as having a face similar to a desiccated beehive covered in cobwebs with no real human features other than the vermin crawling from crevices etched into the wrinkled skin of her face. Her head, round and gray, sat leaning off to one side as if her neck had been broken and an evil stench permeated the room when she was present. It might be safe to say at this point that Roger needed to really think about his standards. Also, if all it takes to win a guy over is touching his neck and back, I have been working way too hard for way too long. 
According to Andrea, this spirit still considered herself to be the mistress of the house, which I guess meant she was entitled to the one man living there. The rest of the people there she wanted out, Carolyn especially, because Lord knows, even in death, with the wisdom of all the universe at her disposal, a woman will still do whatever she can to steal another woman's man. In the movie, Carolyn develops mysterious bruises all over her body whose origins are unknown. Eventually, she is woken up by a decrepit spirit hovering over her. The spirit seems to vomit blackness into Carolyn's mouth, ostensibly vomiting her own soul into Carolyn, haunting her from within. So, who was the evil woman with vermin crawling out of her cobwebbed face? Andrea claims to have gone through old county records to figure out who had lived in the house before them, and who might still be there in spirit, trying to run the women out so she could have Roger all to herself. Andrea says, quote, They soon discovered the identity of Carolyn's rival and nemesis, one evil mistress of the house, Bathsheba Sherman. Based upon what they learned about her life, she became the main suspect in death, the likely culprit, the bad witch. According to Andrea, Bathsheba was a devil-worshipping witch who had lived in the house in the 1800s. One character in the book claimed to have had first-hand knowledge of Bathsheba's behavior and described her as someone who would starve and beat her staff but was a, quote, ravishing beauty in youth. Because everyone knows beautiful women are never cruel. So this was particularly noteworthy. Bathsheba allegedly sacrificed her infant by impaling it with a needle. In the movie version, it's Lorraine Warren who identifies Bathsheba from old records of who lived in the house. In Andrea's book, though, it's Andrea's mother, Carolyn, who first brings up Bathsheba. In the movie, Vera Farmiga says Bathsheba's husband caught her trying to sacrifice their infant to the devil, upon which she inexplicably ran outside and hung herself from a tree, but not before cursing anyone who would come to live in the house. Why there was a noose ready and waiting for her and how she got up the tree are unimportant details, I guess. She was a witch, after all. She probably just conjured the noose and flew up into it. Then again, why she didn't use her witchiness to kill her husband when he caught her or fly off into the night, who knows. Andrea admits to not knowing for sure where this baby sacrifice happened, but she says, quote, Bathsheba was an Arnold, and she'd lived on the Arnold estate at that age, so there was every indication to believe the event happened in the Perrone's home. And rest assured, everyone, several psychics over the years confirmed this information. So. Andrea asserts that Bathsheba died of paralysis. She said the coroner said it was almost as if she had turned to stone and that he had never seen anything like it. In the movie, Carolyn, possessed by evil Bathsheba's evil spirit, tries to kill some of the children before she's restrained in a chair in the basement and exorcised by a reluctant Ed Warren. Ed, of course, was not a priest and so was not officially ordained to perform exorcisms, but this was clearly a case of do or die. 
In truth, however, the exorcism never happened. That scene was invented by the screenwriters for maximum dramatic effect. Indeed, according to Andrea's book and the Warrens' own account of the parents' story, the Warrens spent very little time in the house at all. In her book, Andrea explains that the family had determined that Carolyn was most likely possessed by Bathsheba, and the Warrens were summoned either by the parents themselves or a family friend, depending on which source you read. The Warrens performed a seance, attempting to communicate with Bathsheba, but their attempts seemingly backfired. When Carolyn's body contorted, she spoke in a voice that wasn't her own and was thrown 20 feet across the room. Roger, understandably put out that his wife was in worse shape than she'd been before the seance, demanded the Warrens de-demonize his wife and then punched Ed in the face and kicked Ed and Lorraine out of his house. And then, according to Andrea, things in the house got worse. I don't know about you, but frankly, that would have made a much more interesting movie. Watching two dudes in bad 70s clothes duking it out while Lily Taylor growls about Satan in the background? Where's that movie? In the movie, Ed and Lorraine, in a snooze-worthy display of victim-blaming, tell the parents the reason this is happening to them is because they don't believe in Jesus and their children aren't baptized. Which begs the question... Why aren't there any stories of Jews or Muslims being possessed by the devil? If a belief in Jesus is the only thing protecting people from demons, why don't we hear more harrowing tales of Buddhists being tormented by witches and ghosts? You'd think they'd be the perfect candidates. And not for nothing, but it's tremendously ironic that in order to even believe in the devil, one needs to believe that God exists. There is no devil without God. One would think that God, in all his omniscience, would be like, I know they're worshipping Satan, but hell, at least that means they know I exist. At the end of the day, that's really all I ask. But whether it was an exorcism or a seance, what was it that was plaguing the parents, and most specifically Carolyn? What was the truth behind this terrifying tale? In an excellent blog post titled A Closer Look, Correcting the Conjuring House History, writer Kenny Biddle refutes Andrea's claims almost without effort. Almost every single claim Andrea made about Bathsheba was made up. The real Bathsheba had four children, three of whom died before the age of three, and one who died at 13. And sure, nowadays, if all of someone's children die in childhood, there's probably a pretty strong case for child abuse. But in the 17 and 1800s, children died constantly. The ways children could die back then are innumerable. Disease, malnutrition, wandering off and getting lost or hurt, getting a small cut. Being a child back in the day was practically a death sentence. None of Bathsheba's children's death were suspicious. What's more, Bathsheba wasn't an Arnold. She had no relation to the Arnold family or the estate. She never lived in the house. Hell, she didn't even live in the same town. Why or how Andrea came up with this Bathsheba person is unclear, and she eventually shifted blame of misidentifying this person from herself and her own family to Mr. and Mrs. Warren. 
And none of this would matter, except that in addition to appropriating this woman's personal tragedy and loss and exploiting it for personal gain, the real Bathsheba Sherman's grave has been broken and vandalized by people who believed Andrea's claims that she was a bad witch. Also, it should go without saying that perpetrating the stupid trope that the souls of witches from the early American colonies are tormenting the living is sexist and lazy. I think we all collectively need to put that myth to bed and move on. Not to mention that Bathsheba lived more than a century after the Salem witch trials of the late 1600s. That doesn't mean she couldn't have been a witch. Actual people who practice witchcraft have existed since long before and for long after the trials ended, but Perrin seems to be threading an invisible needle with this one, for sure. The first three sentences in Andrea Perrin's book are, quote, The telling of this true story is not intended to persuade the reader of its authenticity. Those who believe in the existence of the spirit world will not require convincing. Those who do not believe so will likely remain skeptical. It matters that this story be told with honesty and integrity. And in the closing paragraph of that prologue, she denies any embellishment. But on the very next page, in a section titled, A Proper Introduction, Perrin opens with the story of a 93-year-old Mrs. John Arnold climbing a rickety ladder and hanging herself in the barn. There never was a 93-year-old Mrs. John Arnold who killed herself in the barn of the Arnold house. Manny, the ghost, the one who stood around creeping on the kids... Andrea later determined Manny to be the spirit of Johnny Arnold, whom she said died in the house. John Arnold, Andrea said, climbed into the eaves of the house and drank horse liniment to kill himself. Nope. The John Arnold Andrea was likely referring to had possibly lived in the house in his youth, but didn't die there. He lived into his late 50s and then drank Paris Green, a toxin used in paint and wallpaper, after a long bout of depression, nowhere near the Arnold estate. The 11-year-old girl Andrea describes as having been raped and murdered in the Arnold house also never existed. There was a girl murdered 20 miles away in Uxbridge, Massachusetts, but there was absolutely no mention in any court documents or reports from the time that she had been raped. Why in the world did Andrea feel the need to add this to her supposedly true story? Indeed, every single death Andrea recounts as having happened in the house or around it, and there are several others I haven't mentioned, seems to be made up. Writer Kenny Biddle said it seemed like Andrea found any death of a person with the surname Arnold before 1970 anywhere within a 20-mile radius and both attributed the person to the Arnold family that built the house and, despite her claim that she didn't embellish, embellished a lot. And again, maybe this all wouldn't be such a big deal, except that some of the people whose tale Andrea Perrin co-opted for her book are real people. Maybe they haven't all had their graves vandalized because of Andrea's lies, but 
I don't know. It seems unfair that the memory of a little girl who was senselessly murdered when she was 11 is sensationalized with a rape that never happened just to sell books. Despite Andrea's claim that everyone who lived in the house after the parents moved out in 1980 experienced paranormal occurrences, none of the subsequent owners has ever reported anything out of the ordinary in the house. Indeed, the woman who owned the house from 1987 to 2019 ran a daycare in the house. A daycare! In the house haunted by a baby-killing witch. Nary a baby in the daycare was harmed. So what about the Warrens? Why didn't they refute any of Andrea's claims? When Andrea shifted blame from herself to Lorraine for misidentifying poor put-upon Bathsheba, why didn't Lorraine defend herself? In their day, Ed and Lorraine were some of the most sought-after paranormal researchers in New England. Most of the ghost stories you've heard from the East Coast from the 60s to the 80s had the mark of a Warren investigation. And, according to Lorraine, they didn't charge for their services. I suppose they made a living giving lectures? Ed Warren died in 2006, but not before playing his recording of his interview with Carolyn Perrin for movie producers. So, imagine this. You've been scraping by on investigating ghost stories for decades. Your husband and business partner has died, and a big Hollywood type knocks on your door and says, how would you like to sell us the rights to your stories? Who knows how much Lorraine made in the venture, but there are eight Conjuring movies so far and another one on the way. If she was smart, Lorraine got points on the back end for any movie in the franchise. As for Andrea, the 500 pages of House of Darkness, House of Light that The Conjuring was based on was just the first 500. Andrea squeezed a 2,000-page trilogy out of essentially nothing. And sure, points for imagination and tenacity, but tarnishing the reputations of actual people who live actual lives is pretty gross. Andrea has had ample opportunity to right her wrongs and salvage the damage she's done, but so far, no dice. And as long as they keep churning out the movies, why would she? The house was recently put back on the market for $1.2 million. The previous owners had plans to renovate and turn the house into a tourist attraction. Unfortunately, they bought it right before the plague and their plans were thwarted. Or that's what they're saying anyway. But who knows? Maybe they started being visited by the spirits of that ancient land who were tired of the attention and just want some peace and quiet. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan, when the bodies of 10 experienced hikers were found in the Siberian mountains, no one could figure out what happened to them. The mystery of the Dyatlov Pass... We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. 
If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. Thank you.